that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. I'm Canon Andrew Brazier. And I'm a venerable Isaac Rayberg. So good to have you again, and uh, today when we're recording, it is the uh, eighth anniversary of your ordination to the priesthood, I saw. Yeah, I only remembered because Facebook told me so. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) That's so good. Like, I'm the same way, and and I don't have much of an excuse because I'm more recently ordained, Um, but people every now and then ask me, and I'm like, oh, they're like, you don't remember? And I'm like, it's not a, a day that I wrote down it was a special day but <laughs> it's yeah. not just something burned into my memory so <laughs> i always meant to get the uh, date carved into the communion set i received but oh, yeah, i never did i still have the set i just i just yeah, never, yeah. never did get that that done <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah I, i'm the same way and my wife uh, knows that she jokes about it about all things except for my anniversary i know my anniversary but um when it comes to just you know, other things in life uh, I'm not not very good with dates. No, I, I know you know. I can tell you the year. I can tell you the month, but the precise date. I'm always hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but no, nevertheless, congratulations. That, that's fantastic. Thank and, you. Uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that you had been uh, ordained to the priesthood uh, that long. Um, that, that's fantastic. Don it doesn't Bobby feel like one. it. Yeah, it, it, sure it doesn't does feel it. like it at all. Really, eight yeah. years already. And same thing. I, I got married about a year later, and it's the same. Oh my goodness, yeah. we've been married for seven years already. You know. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the way that goes. Well, that's the crazy thing about it. Like, obviously, I was Facebook stalking you. Obviously, and that's <laughs> I knew that uh, you, you posted it, so it was a public post. But mm-hmm. uh, but then what's crazy is when I saw the year. Uh, it said 2013, and I was like, 2013 is an eight. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is eight years ago. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the surprising thing right there. That, that exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh um, my goodness. You know, and it's like that with all things in life. But uh, uh, it's it's surreal. You know, the older you get, the more you're like, it wasn't that long ago. Oh well, I'll tell you this brief aside before we actually get to the meat of, uh, of the matter here. <laughs> I was uh, last week. Obviously, it was Holy Week. Well, I'll say obviously. Whenever people are listening to this, it was Holy Week. When we we're last week. When we we're recording this, and. I was going to uh, Publix. I was getting some uh, Easter lilies um, at the request of uh, some congregants. Uh, it was some things that, that we needed to get last minute. And we're like, yeah, I'll pick up some more of those and go buy Publix. And I'm talking with this kid as I'm, I'm checking out. And, and I say, like, kid, he's a teenager and uh, he has a job for crying out loud. And uh, he's, you know, ringing everything up. And he says, and I'm wearing my collar. He's like, so you doing anything this weekend? <laughs> and I was just like kind of smirked and I was like, no, nah, nothing big. And the guy who's like bagging the groceries is like, dude, he's a minister. Look at the collar. And the guy <laughs> feels instantly embarrassed. And I was like, it's all right. I had to mess with you and not say anything. And, uh, and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, Easter. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I was like, yeah, yeah, Easter, you know. And I was like, you doing anything? 
He's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm going to church, you know. <laughs> it's like, well, of course you're going to say that now. Sure so you that, are. <laughs> that made me chuckle. And I was like, well, what else are you going to do? And he's like, well, I'm going to be working on, on my car. And I was like, cool. And I was like, what's your vehicle? And he was like, oh, it's an old one. And I was like, oh, okay. What is it? He was like, well, I mean, it's pretty old. It's almost a classic. And I was like, okay, well, what, what is it? What do you drive? It's a 2002 Pontiac Firebird. <laughs> and then the knife went right into my heart and just started twisting it. And I was like, oh, gosh. I was like, that's a classic to you? And I was like, that car's only – and I started doing the math. And I was like, yeah, it's not really a classic in terms of a car. But I was like, it is, you know, 18, 19 years old, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 19 years. And I was like, that's that's incredible. So, <laughs> I, I saw something the other day that was you – know, you remember that show, The Wonder Years? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When, when it came out, it was only – it was only uh, it came out in like 1985 and it in the first 1965 mm-hmm. so if if that was to happen today it would be taking place in 2001 oh my gosh wow <laughs> that just rocked my world yeah it just, it's it's amazing it just doesn't make Good sense gravy. you're like, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean like, i have no reason to doubt your math skills but <laughs> wow that is terrible <laughs> oh just... my Man, that just really uh, took me down a notch right there. So, <laughs> the perspective of time—it's—it's it's fascinating. So, <laughs> well, I've completely uh, taken our, our conversation uh, off road there, but uh, but yeah, you know, fascinating. I don't know how to tie that in with the covenant of God. The covenant of God is timeless. That's uh, right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I guess that's the way we'll, we'll segue into it. So we're we're in. Um, uh, knowing God uh, through the liturgy, uh, Dr. Peter Toon, uh, for some reason, it's the first time you picked up on it and uh, reading it online. And we're in chapter four, uh, Covenant with God. And so we're, we're plowing our way through this. So we'll go ahead and pick up with it. So we, we've, if you've just joined in or you forgot about it, and uh, hey, we're recording this within two weeks of our last episode, so good for us. We went from chapter three, what knowing is, really talking about knowing uh, persons, knowing God. And, uh, and going through our Anglican formularies uh, to now hopping over to a new chapter about now that we know God, who has revealed himself to the Trinity, what does it mean to have covenant with God? And so we'll, we'll pick up there. Um, I'll do this, uh, Canon Isaac, I'll do the, the little introductory paragraph, then I'll kick over to the first section on God's initiative. Sounds great. We need to take time now to reflect upon the nature of the relationship which we have with God, since the way we understand this relationship will determine to a large measure our attitudes within common prayer and worship. If I come to common worship thinking that my relationship with God is that of an equal or near equal partner with God, then my attitude will reflect that mindset. If I come thinking that I am doing God some kind of favor or showing him some special loyalty, then my attitude will reflect this mindset. In contrast, If I come in gratitude and humility, conscious of my sins and unworthiness, but overwhelmed by God's mercy to me and Jesus Christ, then my attitude will be very different. I'm going to pause there because that was a powerful introductory paragraph. And uh, I'll still read the next section there, Canon Isaac. But I love this introduction of the way uh, Dr. Toon is setting it up, of how we come to God, you know, consciously. You know, would really impact our understanding of what our real relationship is with God. And I know where he's probably going to set us up for, especially in terms of saying that 
if we come with gratitude and humility and we know our sins, we know that we are miserable offenders, mm-hmm. then we're going to be overwhelmed and understand a lot better how deep and gracious God's mercy is uh, through Jesus Christ. And, and when we're in the ministry, um, this really helps to give some stuff perspective, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, God was doing just fine before we got here. and He's going to be doing <laughs> just fine when we're gone. Um, as much as he's using us in his, in, in whatever way for his kingdom, he doesn't need us. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's, that's real helpful because then it's not on our shoulders. Amen. Absolutely. It's a great point. We'll pick up now with God's initiative, excuse me, God's initiative, the first section here in chapter four. <clears throat> in the Bible, God enters into a relationship with believing sinners through what is called his covenant. We tend to think of a covenant as an agreement or contract between two parties who are of the same kind or who are equal in some way or another. The Bible contains references to such covenants, for example, agreements between kings. However, God's covenant with man is not an agreement between equals, and it is not a contract to which both sides agree. It is a totally one-sided affair because God alone establishes it, and in doing so, he sets out its terms and conditions. Then to remind us of our sinful, creaturely status and reduce our pride, God tells us that we can only fulfill the conditions of the covenant as his junior covenant partners with his help. In fact, without the help of the Holy Spirit, we cannot even enter, let alone live rightly within his covenant. And I'll pause there just to make a point that it's very akin to the, I like how he says terms and conditions. This is written very much before the, the internet, you know, is a thing, or if it is, it's when Al Gore, uh, Gore just early invented the internet. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thanks, We're all on it. <laughs> before we're all on AOL and everything else. But, uh, but I like how he uses terms and conditions because it makes me think of the fact that when you click on a website or you do any sort of agreement online, it's just one-sided terms and conditions. And uh, often in a bad manner, fortunately, God, his covenant, his terms and conditions is all grace and, and mercy for us. Uh, in terms of, of he doing the work for us as we're getting ready to get into. But I couldn't help but point out that terms and conditions, the way for us to think about it is it's just one-sided. Like, it's just here it is. You know, it's being given to you. It's not something that we negotiate. And this is probably beyond, because I, I haven't read too far ahead, um, the scope of what Tune's talking about. But um, I, I remember back in the day doing a lot of studies on the different major covenants in Scripture Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think back in the day, it was kind of, kind of more from a dispensational standpoint, which I, I wouldn't really put myself in these days, but, but even in a more, you know, uh, like co- covenant theology perspective and, um, how, you know, there were there, that, that difference between unconditional and conditional covenants, depending yes. on the context. Um, but again, I, I do think, I think that's going to be beyond what what uh what tune is talking because he's not really talking in you know kind of those historic biblical covenants but just kind of covenant with god in general yeah absolutely and and i'm the same way i haven't quite read ahead i'm trying to look ahead very quickly to see if he drops this i'm sure that he will but the fact the fact that when it comes to the covenant with abraham that the sacrifices that are laid out before um God and Abraham, it's only God who walks through yes. the sacrifices that he is making this covenant with Abraham and is telling Abraham that if I don't keep my promises as the Lord God, then may it be done to me as these sacrifices, these you know animals that are slain before us. 
uh, and Abraham notably does not does not pass through um, these sacrifices. Yeah, and that's really kind of almost the quintessential unconditional covenant, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very nice. So I'll continue along here in God's initiative. On first consideration, this may seem to be dictatorial and tyrannical action by God. Yet, if we take time to reflect upon such a covenant, we shall see that we are not talking of two equal partners, but of the Lord God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. For the angels serve and adore who is infinitely above our being and our thought. He is God, and we are mere creatures, sinful, spiritually and morally diseased creatures. Further, if we recognize that his covenant is truly a covenant of grace and is established for our good and eternal welfare, that we may become his children and be restored to genuine knowing and loving of him for all eternity, then we shall probably admit not only that he has every right to act as he has, but that he has acted in mercy and compassion towards us by establishing his covenant of grace. For the simple fact is that we ourselves cannot help ourselves in terms of lifting ourselves up to God in order to negotiate with him. He must come towards us. His covenant of grace is his coming towards us so that we can draw near to him. The initiative and grace of God in our salvation is most clearly understood and presented in the Book of Common Prayer 1928, as in the Book of Common Prayer 1962. That's the Canadian one for our American listeners. The first office of instruction of the Catechism, the Book of Common Prayer 1928, begins with this colic. Lord of all power and might, who art the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of thy name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness. And of thy great mercy, keep us in the same through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It is also the colleague for the seventh Sunday after Trinity. Its words clearly point both to the initiative of God towards us and his help to us in fulfilling our duties of his covenant. He is the author and giver, and it is he alone who can increase, nourish, and keep his believing children in his grace and covenant. Our genuine freedom is to do his bidding with his gracious help. In contrast to the Book of Common Prayer 1979, does not have this clarity of commitment to the initiative and assistance of God in his relationship with his people. There's lurking, there's lurking there, both in its catechism, known as the outline of the faith, and in some of its colleagues, for example, that of the first Sunday after the Epiphany, which refers to the covenant as being made by those who are baptized. The tendency to treat human beings as if they were negotiating, near equal covenant partners with God. This tendency reflects, of course, the pride of modern man who refuses to recognize that he is not merely in rebellion against God, which the Book of Common Prayer in 1979 seems to teach, but he is so sick and diseased by sin that he cannot truly help himself, which the Book of Common Prayer in 1979 appears to downplay or reject. So I'll pause there because I think that you mentioned at one point that you came to Anglicanism or you were raised in Anglicanism under the 79 prayer book. Am I accurate in that? Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. My, my, um, my mom was Roman Catholic. My dad was Episcopalian. And and by then um, the 79 was, was what was used. And so as a, as a child, that was certainly the, uh, the, the prayer book of my um, growing up. That's how I came to know the prayer book. And when I returned um, later on as an adult to, to the tradition, it, it was kind of rediscovering the 79 that really helped me come back. But yeah, I've, I've definitely heard um, from, from quite a bit um, this mm-hmm. accusation or um, assertion that there's some, um, often it's kind of pointing like, you know, there, there's some Pelagian <laughs> tendencies within the, within the 79. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, I've, 
I have, I do have a copy on my shelf that I, I'm going to pull up that collect um, if I can figure out how to, if I can remember how to read the collects. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was curious because I've got one as well. It is stashed like at the bottom of my closet where I can probably hear people listening to us saying that's where it belongs. <laughs> <laughs> so that, what did he say? And, uh, Epiphany once. I'll look that up while, while you he continue. He said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> first Sunday of Epiphany. And, and I'm curious because I just popped open the 2019 prayer book since it uh, really, you know, kind of took the 79 and then tries to steer it back towards a more classical um prayer book with some success and some failures there and uh i've got it pulled up so i'm curious if it's been modified in any way or if it says the same here's what the 79 says Um, okay this is first first sunday after the epiphany baptism Mm -hmm. of our lord and that's in the contemporary collects it says father in heaven who at the baptism of jesus in the river jordan proclaimed him your beloved son and anointed him with the Holy spirit grant that all who are baptized into his name may keep the covenant they have made and boldly confess him as Lord and savior who with you and the Holy spirit lives and reigns one God in glory everlasting. Amen. So I can definitely see what he's referencing there. Yeah. And I, I, I think I understand what's, what's going on here. You know, the idea that we did make some promises in our baptism Um, you know, or kind of took those promises upon ourselves in our confirmation, depending on whether we were baptized as little ones or older ones. So I can, Mm -hmm. I can see where that, where that is. Um, but at the same time, I I think it's really, really important that we, we, in our sacramental theology, that we recognize baptism as, as being a covenant God makes with us. You know, this it, the baptism has to be considered an act of God rather than an act of us if we're going to mm-hmm. really approach it the way that the prayer book, that the, that the church Catholic historically has approached it. Um, otherwise, we might as well just, you know, go be Anabaptists um, if, it's, if, it's, yeah. if it's all about us or, it's, mm-hmm. it's, or basically the essence of baptism is something I'm doing to show my loyalty to God rather than something that God's doing as a promise to me. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I definitely see the, the problem there. And that also kind of, you know, I, I do remember reading about how in the, some of the liturgical movement um, revisions, including the 79, there was a little bit of, confusion at the time regarding what to do with some of the office, the um, rites of initiation, mm-hmm. um, you know, and how all that works together, um, kind of a downplaying of, of confirmation, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I do remember reading that there were, there was some issues regarding baptism as well, although I don't remember all the details of, of what that was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then something that I think is interesting while I was flipping through listening uh, to you read that colleague is the first Sunday after the Epiphany in the 28th prayer book is, O Lord, we beseech thee mercifully to receive the prayers of thy people who call upon thee and grant that they may both perceive and know what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Meanwhile, the 2019 uh, ACNA prayer book, it's also different from both of them, is Eternal Father, at the baptism of Jesus, you revealed him to be your son, and your Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. 
Grant that we who are born again by water and the Spirit may be faithful as your adopted children through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. One of the uh, differences between the 1928 and the other classical prayer books and the, yeah. uh, the new ones is, is that um, the, the baptism isn't celebrated until the second Sunday after Epiphany, but mm, even then it doesn't have, um, yeah, it doesn't have, have that focus in the collect. But at any rate, I do really like the way the 2019 kind of bring, bringing in that focus um, does it in a non-Pelagian way. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the way to go about it. Non-Pelagian is always the way to go about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, shall I pick up? Oh, and one of, one of the things, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of this, but I was thinking yeah. as we were reading this, how much um, this one-sided aspect of of our justification and mm-hmm. and i mean that very augustinian he doesn't really go into election and predestin- predestination but it's really hiding there in the background mm-hmm. how that that fits so much into the articles of religion as well um so absolutely the, yeah it's just something to point out i like to point out that whenever we can <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that, that kind of chain that we get from article number nine through oh gosh article number was at 18 yeah those nine articles that kind of build on each other absolutely yeah it's a great way that's where like when people talk about anglicans have no theology i'm like well you're not reading our formularies (laughs) yeah because the problem isn't we don't have it it's just that so many of our folks have decided to ignore it yeah yeah absolutely yeah well, at any rate, <laughs> the next section, uh, this, is, this subheading is the biblical teaching. God's relationship with human beings is established and begins with his relationship of creator to created. This can never change for having ennobled man, have, however ennobled man is, he can never be God. He will always be a finite, independent, and contingent being looking unto God, in whom, as Paul declares, he lives and moves and has his being. Acts 17.28 However, within the relationship which man has marred by sinfulness and rebellion, God has moved to establish a further relationship, a relationship of grace and unmerited favor, whose full content is a new creation. Yeah, this is that's super important. Um, you know, in our glorification, as mm-hmm. much as we have, you know, one of us does sit on God's throne. Um, we never lose that create creation status, and that's <laughs> that's good Absolutely. to remember. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, the next paragraph. The the Lord God began this new relationship when He declared, "I will establish My covenant." Genesis 6, 18, Exodus 6, 4 through 5. Then the essence of the covenant was captured by God's declaration. I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God. Exodus 6, 7. See also Genesis 17, 7 and Revelation 21, 2 through 3. The covenant is unilateral in origin and establishment. It is not only offered, but it is given unto Abraham and his descendants. Thus, it is two-sided when it comes into practical effect for the recipients, Israel and then the church, become by God's mercy and choice his covenant partners. He is to them their Lord, 
and they are to worship, trust, love, and obey him as he directs, uh, referencing Deuteronomy 7, 9, and 13, 1 Kings 8, 23. So here he kind of, he's kind of getting into those different, different kinds of covenants. Mm-hmm. And it seems that Toon's going to kind of just bring them all into one big category of covenant with God. And I, I think there's some benefit to that. Um, as much as there's also benefit into kind of looking at some of those individual covenants, how they might apply in a New Testament context, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. I'll pick up there for the next paragraph. All right. So God establishes covenant of grace with Abraham, Genesis seventeen seven, his descendants. On Mount Sinai, a special administration of this covenant was established with Israel through Moses. See Exodus 19. In the five books of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, we learn not only of what God's initiative and relationship meant, but also what the covenant obligations of the people of Israel, or what were the covenant obligations of the people of Israel. While God promised to be the living God who would guide, protect, and bless them and care for them as his elect people, they in turn were committed to be his people on his terms and according to his conditions. In their relationship to him, there is no negotiating possibilities for He was their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt and who would lead them into the promised land. The Ten Commandments began with a statement of faith. The God who commands is the living God who has redeemed and will guide his people. See Exodus 20 verses 1 through 2. In the rest of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we read both of God's continuing faithfulness to his elect people and of their imperfect response to his gracious mercy and guidance. The story of the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles is the story more of a failure to be is the story more of failure to be his covenant partners than of success in that vocation. Much of what the prophets declared was a word from heaven calling upon the Israelites to fulfill their covenantal duties. The people were called to know their Lord God and in knowing him to reject other gods. But so often they chose not to know him and to go after Baal and the gods of Canaan. Yet, despite their apostasy and pride, God, Yahweh, Jehovah, remained their God, never forgetting them. Speaking through through Jeremiah, the Lord God addressed his covenant people in these words. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his mind. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight. That's chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, the prophet Jeremiah. So there, Ken Isaac, we have quite a, a great and honest explanation of the Old Testament. And I fear that too many people read the Old Testament, or too many people don't read the Old Testament. That's my right. favorite, number one. <laughs> number two, if they do... They're like, wow, these are a lot of bad people. <laughs> why, why, why am I going to be religious when all these people are so crooked and they do all these crazy things? Why can't I just live the way I want to? And I fear that it's missing the reading comprehension of exactly. There, there is a problem with the human race. Even God's chosen people do not fulfill his law. That's something that I um, I think that the... the the uh, classical prayer books do a really good job of, of highlighting that. Did you, did you catch um, to, uh, to kind of uh, uh, pump up another North American Anglican uh, production? There was a, on, on our YouTube channel, um, there was an interview with um, the main editors of the uh, 1662 
international edition. Did you catch that? Yeah, I caught part of it, and I confess I had to pause it halfway through and forgot to go back. Oh, go back and watch the rest of it. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty long. It was one of those where I mean, which is which is good. I mean, it was great. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. It was really good. But I really appreciate. I forget whether it was um, um, Keen or Bray. One one of the two mentioned yeah. how um, there's a certain set of assumptions in the classical text, and one of those is that. Um, we are we are a, a, a people who are sinful and we have a guilt problem. We need to deal with that, and and that God has done that for us. Um, Absolutely, that that's an assumption that's definitely not there in some of the 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 newer newer approaches. Um, I, I remember talking with a couple of folks in in our diocese why about why they prefer in the in the twenty nineteen to use the uh, renewed ancient text of, of communion rather than the Anglican standard text. And the renewed ancient is based more on, but basically it's, it's kind of like the 79s prayer a um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of w- with some cleanup for some of, some of the issues. Whereas yeah, the Anglican yeah. standard is basically a moderniz- modernization of the 28. And it really boiled down to, to um, discomfort with that aspect that 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 guilt aspect of of so much of that classical liturgy, um, recognizing who we are as people that need God's grace, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in in their mind it kind of was an over an over focus on on the problem that humanity has, um, and and then you know because of that kind of an over focus on um, the atonement as dealing with that problem. Rather than kind of a more, you know, so-called Christus Victor model, yeah, where um, yeah. Christ, you know, in in the atonement, Christ brings victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, and and at the same time, I, I really, you know, it, this is this is so rambly, so so kind of uh, no, no, this is great. Yeah. Um, just came out over over Easter weekend a video mm-hmm. that that NT Wright had did just a little short video I think it was part of a longer interview, um, and he was talking about that very thing and and the video was was titled something like penal substitution versus uh, Chris's Victor but it what it wasn't a versus the way that that Bishop Wright was 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 doing he said no really we have we have complementary models of the atonement. Um, that, that, you know, you have to have that idea that he dealt with sin and that it was a, that, that there was a penalty that had to be done, but this wasn't, you know, cosmic child abuse, God, um, or, or, you yeah. know, a really angry God. And then the, the son kind of trying to placate mean old dad rather, you know, the, the, the victory is part of that penal substitution. I'm like, I'm, thank you very much, you know, professor Bishop Wright for, 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 for doing that. Because they don't need to be antithetical concepts. No, not at all. Yeah. So I mean, and just to, I don't mean to interrupt. Oh, you, not at just all. To kind of go to that point, you know, like with, with the the Western Church and the Eastern Church and the, the Latin Church and the Greek Church, we certainly have our different uh, emphases, but both of our fathers emphasize both aspects of that theology. Yeah. The fact that that Christ is victorious upon the cross, that He's enthroned upon the cross. I mean, our Lord says. You know, when I'm high and lifted up, you know, I'll draw people to, to me. And we, he finds his victory and we find our victory through him upon that cross and through uh, trampling down death by death, as the old Eastern uh, hymn proclaims. 
But at the same time, it's because we have to have reconciliation with God. We, we have to have that blood of Christ to cover ourselves, to bring about the forgiveness of sins. So I find uh, one of the few you know, things that I find joy in uh, these days is the fact that we are rediscovering that we need a healthy need of both aspects of those theologies yeah. to have a full understanding, a full understanding, as though we fully understand our, our Lord God, but, but to have a clearer picture of just what was accomplished and why we should be rejoicing as miserable offenders uh, for what God has done for us. Yeah, you know, I, and that's, that's a, that last part's a super good point, Andrew, because, um, you know, there, there's a fear out there that, you know, the clause, you know, miserable offenders and some of those other issues um, just really beats us up. But, yeah. but, it, but if we're looking at it biblically, it doesn't. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. we, mm-hmm. It's, it's, and it's not that we, we wear that as a badge of honor, but God is so good because I'm so miserable. Like yeah, it, it yeah. shows how good God is and how much he loves me because despite mm-hmm. being miserable, he lifts me up out of that misery. Yeah. Amen. And does so much more than that. He, he lifts us up and then adopts us as his sons. You know, it's, right. it's ludicrous. And I've had, I mean, this is the preacher. I mean, I've had a, a an informal sermon series where my parishioners don't realize it, or maybe they do. Um, that I've been continuously hitting home that it's, it's utterly ridiculous what God does for us because we are akin to a bunch of rebels trying to take over a kingdom and the kingdom decides I'm going to come and join you and die. I'm going to take that, that penalty of what's the the penalty for treason. It's still in our American constitution, you know, that that you have the penalty of death, you know, of, of treason. And, um, and he takes that for us. And then says, oh, by the way, death won't hold me. I'm alive again. Once again, you're king. Now come and sit and dine with me at the king's table. Right. You rebels, you know. And we literally dine with him, you know, here before the eschaton, you know, by surrounding ourselves around the table of, of the Lord's Supper, dining in the Holy Communion of communing with our God. And there's this great marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come. It's fascinating. you know. And we're not just talking about another human being. We're talking about the holy eternal God who's made heaven and earth and all that is there, the entire universe of cosmos says, I want you to dine with me. It's it. I could just, I could just let you go and just say, you know, the hell with it. Literally right. like, the, the hell with you, you know, and instead, no, he descends down to the dead, you know, and rescues a host of captives as the scripture says, it's phenomenal. And I'm sorry. I can't help but just be joyful. It's, it's been, it's Easter time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> It, it really is just the greatest story ever, and the and the greatest part about it is that it's true. Yeah, it is. It is. I'll pick up uh, with the with the next page here. Sounds good. The Lord delights to see in His creatures a true knowledge of Himself. Through Hosea, He said, "For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings." Within the Mosaic covenant, what God looked for in and through the use of the temple. The sacrificial system and priesthood was a people who knew him and thus worshipped him with, from within knowledge. With the incarnation of the eternally begotten Son of God, the Word made flesh, God revealed the length and breadth, height and depth of his mercy and of his covenant of grace. In and through Jesus Christ, God the Father established what Jesus himself called a new covenant. See Matthew twenty six twenty six 26-30. The fullness of his covenant of grace 
In the atoning, reconciling work of Jesus, God made possible for people of all races and all times what he had offered and given to Israel in a limited space and time. By his sacrificial death and shed blood, Jesus established the covenant of grace on new foundations. He became the mediator through whom believing sinners come to God and call him Father. So I I spent most of my teens and twenties in um in, in Messianic Judaism. I think we we've, we've probably mentioned yeah. that before, and um you know kind of a Jews for Jesus type stuff. And mm-hmm. what one of the one of the real kind of basic unifying factor for most of, of of Messianic Judaism, and it's it's not a monolithic movement at all. It's not not centralized. You, you find mm-hmm. you find all sorts of things you know, within it from kind of on the one hand, you know, just, you know, Pentecostals who, who, who like Jewish things or, you know, folks that are basically Baptistic in their theology, but they, they, you know, celebrate the Levitical feast to frankly, full out heresy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not monolithic, uh, but, but, um, you know, and I have, I have a lot of respect for, um, uh, some of the congregations here in town, the ones that I was once affiliated with, even though I do disagree with some of that, this stuff that, and, and, and this is, this is one of those that I, I think tune does a really good job of pointing out how, um, you know, Israel was a microcosm of, of the world, how um, this, that relationship between the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant works the, the old Testament and the new Testament, you know, I, I remember kind of, kind of when the, when the, when the other shoe dropped for me, um, yeah. One of the, one of the scholars kind of, kind of one of the really, really good scholars in, in that movement, he had drawn, he was teaching a systematics class. It was pretty good. I mean, it's very, very much from a dispensational point of view, um, unapologetically so, but he, he kind of drew a big Venn diagram on the board and yeah. he had one of the circles labeled the church, one labeled Israel, and then where it overlapped, he he, he labeled it, you know, basically the, the Messianic Jews, the, those Jews who mm-hmm. believe in Christ. And, you know, in, in his mind, this was kind of the a really good picture of the relationship between God's covenant with Israel and God's covenant with, with the nations through Christ. And I was like, that just doesn't fit how I've, come to read the bible yeah you know and instead it's more like you had israel and then those 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 borders became porous and and encapsulated a lot more people and then some individual israelites many individual israelites unfortunately were 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 cut off from the covenant through unbelief but it's it's not you know a church replaces Israel, but that the concept grows. Yes, yes. Which which is again you know what what he said here you know he had offered you know God made possible for people of all races and all times what he had offered and given to Israel in a limited time and space. Um, that's yeah. good stuff. That's good stuff. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's like. What Paul says in, uh, in Romans, talking about first Gentiles, he especially gives a warning of Gentiles becoming haughty and, and, and lording it over, uh, you know, the Jewish people of, oh, you know, here we are, part of the covenant. It's like, look, you were grafted in. You're grafted into the existing structure, you know. And 
I like how you said it, uh, Ken and Isaac, in terms of uh, the fact that it's not a, a replacement of it, but it's a, a bringing in of the Gentiles uh, to those who proclaim Christ in faith, that, that he is, that Jesus is the Messiah um, and following his lordship. Absolutely. We'll, we'll pick up now with uh, the next couple of paragraphs here. Jesus Christ is now the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And those who come in faith to the Father in and through him are not only adopted as children of God, but also in their souls God deigns to dwell as he promised through Jeremiah the prophet. Quote, Behold, I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them. Chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. This is not merely knowing about God but it's the knowing through direct communion with God and personal prayer and trusting relationship. Anyone who carefully reads the New Testament, the account of how the new covenant was established by God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit, must see and understand that the relationship with God through faith and by the agency of the Holy Spirit is genuinely personal and dynamic. It is a relationship which operates in both directions with the human movement to God through Jesus Christ, being always dependent upon his primary movement through Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit to his children. Within this covenant, God calls his people into ever-deepening fellowship, union, and communion with himself, for he delights to be known by his redeemed creatures. Has he not made them in order that they might enjoy and love him forever? Human knowing of God begins in personal and corporate prayer, but is extended from prayer into the whole life, for God causes people to walk with him and to be aware everywhere and at all times of his presence with them. Paul himself wrote, knowing God and his sufferings, with and for Christ, as he proclaimed the gospel in the Roman Empire. See, for example, 2 Corinthians 4-6. through 6. So I love how he really draws upon the relationship and how dynamic it is. And how we get the promise in the Old Covenant from the prophet Jeremiah of what God is doing, the work that he is going to accomplish. And he does accomplish in the New Covenant by indeed fulfilling those words uh, from the prophet Jeremiah, making the New Covenant where he actually dwells within his people. And I think this is where we need to have a healthy theology of the Holy Spirit to understand and know that the beauty of Christ dying for us, of rising again to give us new life is that the way he gives us new life is not only with the promise of the resurrection, you know, at the end of time, but also that he's putting in our lives right here and now, while we walk on this earth, the Holy Spirit, through our trust and our faith in him, and by virtue of our baptismal uh, covenant that's being established, uh, that when we're baptized and we have faith in what God has done, that he renews us and renews us to walk in the new life that he's given us, the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. That that passage, I think, is one of the the main Old Testament readings during during Holy Week in the twenty eighth lectionary. I thought it might have been a mm-hmm. for the epistle, but it's not. I, I I remember reading it very recently in that context. Mm-hmm. One of the good things that uh, I'll give credit to the the twenty nineteen the way it adopted the um, the Great Vigil is it incorporates this reading as one of the uh, several lessons. That's right. That's right. To, really, to build up, yeah, build up and emphasize that this is what we're turning towards. Here's all these Old Testament readings, but they're all pointing towards the work that God is doing, and here's the accomplishment of it. Yeah, that's right. 
um, we we did we did the vigil for the first time this year. We did use the the 2019. Um, I, I yeah. my um, my assisting priest and my my deacon and seminarian have been wanting to do an Easter vigil for a while now, and I I basically mm-hmm. said, okay, once <laughs> once that once that's kind of finalized in in one of our approved liturgies, which the 2019 is, then they can. So I I, I turned that over to them. Uh, but it was it was really neat, and it, yeah, I, I did see that there too. It's yeah, it's, it's so it's the Maundy Thursday Old Testament morning prayer reading, in the twenty eighth, as well as yeah, in the vigil. That's a good set of readings. That's in the vigil, by the way. They're they're just amazing. It is, it is. They're really good. You know, I, like I would encourage anyone. Like uh, I know that we're just after Easter when we're, we're recording this right now. We're in Easter tide. Uh, and for any time of the year, to be quite frank, if you're wanting to be catechized and know, like, what is it that God has done? You know, I think that, and especially if you want to dive into the Old Testament, I'm rambling here, but that's a great set of readings. So just go through those readings. You get this very brief synopsis of the Old Testament, but you're really getting a great taste. And I say brief synopsis, the readings are, are quote unquote yeah. long uh, when compared to the other readings you do during church services. But they're not really long in terms of you're reading an entire book or something. It's manageable as a devotion to read through those readings uh, through that great vigil. And then you'll see and you'll realize God has this message throughout Scripture that goes across the time and space of his covenant people. And it's pointing towards this new covenant that he's bringing into effect uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. It really reminded me um, of the uh, lessons and carols reading, you know, in Advent or, or, or early Christmas. That's a great point. I and, and I'm not, I'm not sure um, when the Easter vigil uh, readings were, were, were kind of um, established. I know that the, the, uh, the readings for lessons and carols kind of became somewhat standardized in the, I think early 20th century. But mm-hmm. but yeah, that that'd be interesting. How much kind of playing uh, off of each other they had. Sounds like a great article for the North American English. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add it to my list. I'm like two months behind something <laughs> I had promised. <laughs> put it on my yeah, tab. exactly. <laughs> yeah, put it on my tab. That's right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, I'll pick up in the next paragraph. Okay. In his marvelous letter to Rome. Paul made much use of the word justification, a word closely tied to righteousness and justice. He used it to explain what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God through believing the gospel. See Romans 1, 16 and 17, 3, 21 through 31, and 5, 1 through 1 and 2. It is to be placed by God himself in a right relationship with God because of the merits of Jesus Christ through whom our sins are forgiven and the way to communion with God restored. It is to be declared righteous or just in God's heavenly court, and to be placed in the way of becoming righteous and just. To be justified by faith is to be in God's covenant of grace and the recipient of his covenant mercy and faithfulness. It is to be able to know him as God, for he has placed believers in a right relationship with himself. Previously, in their sinfulness, they were in a wrong or non-relationship, but now by grace, they are in the most intimately close relationship possible with him, for they are heirs and joint heirs with Christ of the kingdom of God. Romans eight seventeen. In fact, Paul makes it clear in his letters that we only know God because he first knew us. See 1 Corinthians 8, 3, 13, 12, and Galatians 4, 9. 
God entered into personal contact with sinful human beings through the incarnate Son and by the Holy Spirit. Only on the basis of his knowing them can they know him. I think that's a, probably a good place to, uh, to, to talk a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, again, turning, turning to the articles of religion um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that, 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 that long chain we get from Article 9 through, through 18, which, which includes, you know, several on, on justification. Um, in Article mm-hmm. 11, it, it, it mentions the homily on justification. It basically says, for more, <laughs> for more information, see the yeah. homily on justification. Which which I did in in our in our videos from Easter week or rather Holy Week um, Tuesday through Thursday I read that as as the homily in our in our uh, in our anti communion videos. That's but I also I also uh, remember from that that video that um, yes uh, Sam Bray and Drew Keen did put the homily on justification in the uh, in the sixteen sixty two international. Yeah. Which is awesome. Which I'm, it is awesome. I, I think it's a, a very wise move. And uh, frankly, whenever ACNA uh, you know publishes another edition of the 2019, or if it's a, a different you know year, you know of Book of Common Prayer, if I'm alive, I'm definitely going to recommend do the same because since the Articles of Religion, the Articles of Religion reference the two books of homily, so I encourage everyone to to read through them and go through them and dig through them. They're great, but especially. The sermon on the salvation of mankind—it's just you really need that in there as an appendix. In the international edition that just came out that you mentioned, it's appendix one. Um, I just pulled my copy to take a look at it, and uh, it's not a long homily. I mean, it's longer than uh, a lot of sermons. It's uh, it's it's called a homily, and most people today think about oh, like a five-minute little, you know quick sermonette, but uh, it's it's very robust and very in-depth and just excellent and really explaining what do we mean by justification. And, uh, and it also walks through, there's a whole separate homily on good works, but it also starts to touch base as to what does it mean about the relationship of good works to justification uh, in Christ. Well, and kind of like how, how articles 9 through 18 really build on each other. The first three or so homilies of, um, of the book of homilies do the same. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to remember um, exactly which ones I'm pulling it up real quick. But um, and I think all of those were written by, by Archbishop Cramer himself. I believe so. Yes. At, least, at least that's what most scholars think. And so, yeah, that's, that's another one I want to do. And I, yeah, the, the, so yeah, fruit, fruitful exhortation to the reading of Holy Scripture. Um, of the misery of all mankind, salvation of all mankind, that's the homily on justification, of true and lively faith, and then of, of good works, and then of Christian love and swear and charity. So really those first six, the first half of the first book of homilies really kind of builds builds as a, as a logical chain. And each of those, at least in, in my edition, which is the common one from the 1850s, I think, um, splits yeah, all of yeah. those. The Griffith yeah, edition. the Griffith yeah. edition, thank you. Yeah, those they're all split into two or three parts. And yeah, each part yeah. is maybe 10, 15 minutes long. I mean, I think the whole homily on justification. Oh, that's good yeah. to know in terms of like, yeah, reading it. Yeah, I take such a slow time and I read through it for, for edification. You know, it takes me longer because I'm just kind of slowly reading it. But that's interesting to know in terms of delivery. That's not that. Yeah, I've, I've, I've done it. I've done it, um, with, you know, kind of in a morning prayer series, that sort of thing, you know, for, for yeah. in the past. 
And I don't think any of them in the first book, those individual parts exceed 15 minutes when I'm delivering it. Um, mm-hmm. So, which, which is, which is good. I mean, that really any, that means any one of those full homilies is kind of not atypical for what you might find in some evangelical non-denom or Presbyterian type circles today. Yeah, absolutely. Cause that would average out. Typically what I've noticed is homilies are broken up in thirds. Yeah. Usually some of them are like fourths or fifths. <laughs> if you get to the homily on, uh, uh, on images. Oh, that's, that's uh, crazy. That's long. the doozy. Yeah. That, that, that one's like a, a book into it. Yeah. It's about 200 pages. <laughs> if I read in, in my edition. <laughs> yeah. 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 That is not a homily. <laughs> but, but besides that one. Yeah. Yeah. More of a yeah. But besides that one, the, the rest of them are very much broken into parts. Um, so that they can be easily read. Like you said, you read through an entire one and you're talking about like 45 minutes to an hour based upon that. So, And I think the, sec- the homilies in the yeah. second book are all a bit longer um, than the first one. The first one, and, the fir- and they, they tend to get a little bit more specific in their, in their topics, whereas the first one is, is a lot more kind of basic, basic Christian, Christian stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's see. That leaves us to on to be placed. Yeah. Is that right? yeah, okay. I'll pick it there. To be placed in the way of personal, practical righteousness, which is the inner life of the new covenant, means being united with Jesus Christ in faith and by the Holy Spirit. Thus, in Romans 8, Paul describes the intimacy which God the Father establishes with his adopted children. He places in their hearts the Holy Spirit, whom he names the Spirit of Christ. By his presence, believers are enabled to cry out from the depths of their beings, Abba, the familiar name for father in the Jewish home. Further, they experience the Spirit himself praying through them, uttering prayers that they themselves could never compose. Their prayer in their life is a response to the Heavenly Father's gracious, loving initiative and continuing faithfulness. The response becomes a life of maturity and faith, hope, and love. And I'll just pause there just to emphasize that, that he just said so much better what I was thinking earlier in our conversation about the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and something that uh, for far too often we either don't emphasize what our salvation means, the fact that the Spirit now dwells within us, we're temples mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit in the words of St. Paul, uh, or you, sometimes you have the shoe on the other foot where we overemphasize and sometimes, uh, I think it was the Eastern Orthodox um uh, uh, priest father uh, uh, Hopko, uh, uh, who passed away a year or two ago, who said, a lot of people do things in the name of the Holy Spirit that would never be done in the name of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I'm paraphrasing, but I heard him make a remark like that on the uh, podcast. No, that's a, that's a great, that's, that's a good pithy sting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, this, this is a two, two kind of asides. Um, you know, he, yeah. he mentioned, how the Holy Spirit is named the Spirit of Christ in, in Romans. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why I don't have any, you know, any, any problems with the filioque theologically. I mean, yeah. is, is that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that language lends itself to, you know, biblical basis for, for that, that idea. And the other, the other, the other side is that, um, you know, my, my, my brother and his, and his kids live in Israel and, um, they still do. I mean, it's still the the, the custom um, in in Jewish homes, in, in Hebrew speaking homes. That yeah, the the father is is, is Abba. That's that's a, my mm-hmm. my my nieces and nephews call their dad. They do call him Abba. 
that's wonderful. Yeah, and, and just to make a point of the filioque, that's why like I'm the same way. The theological, I don't see a problem with it. Uh, in obedience to our bishop, when we do uh, the creed, we do omit it out of respect that it wasn't conciliar mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the West adding it on there. But we have it once again in the Athanasian Creed, which we also confess and use several times uh, during the year. And the, the Articles of Religion also uh, have the filioque built uh, within right. it. Um, and so I want to say it's, it's the article on the Holy Ghost, which would be Article 5, I think. Yeah, I just found my Articles of Religion. Yeah, Article 5, Holy Ghost proceeding from the Father and the Son. Yeah, it doesn't so. really say much. <laughs> that article doesn't say much beyond a Fermina filioque. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the um the Athanasian Creed, you know, we, we've talked about how there's some settings in the St. Dunstan Psalter in, in the past. And the St. Dunstan Psalter yeah. is is published by kind of a Western Rite Orthodox group and Lancelot mm-hmm. Andrews Press. Um so it's it's kind of funny they, they have the way the way that the twenty nineteen does the asterisks and the brackets for the Filioque in the in the Nicene Creed because of that. They do something similar um, with the Athanasian Creed, um, you know, basically saying how, yeah, in, in, in the text, in the Latin text, it has this, but as, as Eastern folks, we generally don't, don't, don't use it, yeah. which, is, yeah. which is kind of funny, almost a reverse of, reverse of the way that goes. <laughs> that is, that is, that is too funny. All right, I'll pick up the, uh, and, and finish off these last two paragraphs of this section. Sounds good. Taking the broad range of images used in the New Testament of the relationship of God to those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, we may notice their personal nature by briefly mentioning four. God is the heavenly father and believers are his adopted children, the brethren of Christ and joint heirs with him of the father's kingdom. Thus we pray our father. Further, God, or Jesus Christ as God-man, is the Lord and King, and believers are his subjects and servants, who live to render him humble service. Then God, or Jesus Christ, is the shepherd, and believers are his sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and my sheep hear his voice, and I know them. God, or Jesus Christ as God-man, is the bridegroom who loves the church, and in response to the church, and in response the church is the bride, who likewise loves and obeys the bridegroom. The last image points to a vital intimacy and is interesting to observe that the Hebrew verb to know can and does sometimes in the Old Testament, or can and does refer sometimes in the Old Testament to the intimate act of sexual intercourse. For example, 1 Samuel one nineteen, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. Therefore, the knowing of the bridegroom, Jesus, by the bride, the church, points to deep spiritual union and communion within the souls of the faithful with Christ himself and because with him, the father. Yeah, those are, those are all really, really good images. I've been, yes, in in my homilies, I've been emphasizing that second one a lot, um, or or rather the the second part of the first one about um, the, the adoption joint heirs and that sort of thing. It just kind of has, has worked really well with, with the readings. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, all four of those are absolutely necessary. Absolutely. And uh, it's something that people typically think of, like, oh, the Eastern Church really focuses on the communion with God, you know, the, the theosis. But it's very much in the Western Church, very much something talked about. Um, 
And actually, someone referred me to a quote from uh, from Calvin talking about our union with God that I thought was fascinating. I was reading through it, and I was like, if I just didn't know who wrote this, I would have thought, is this like an Eastern writer that I'm reading? Um, that is something that's not always emphasized in terms of our salvation and the, the quote-unquote stereotypical you know, Western or American church. But that union with God is huge. It's, it's just a tremendous aspect of our our salvation and how great and deep are the riches of God in the words of St. Paul in terms of, of what he has done, what he is doing and what he will do uh, at the end of time. When we have that, like I mentioned earlier, the great uh, marriage feast uh, of the, the lamb of where Christ, the bridegroom uh, becomes one with, with the bride, the church, uh, not destroying our, you know, our individual you know selves and not, you know, some form of nirvana where we evaporate away, but, but indeed, like the image of what we have here on earth with marriage of the two becoming one flesh, we have this beautiful image of God is working something spectacular where we have a true communion with him. And um, what an honor to have that, you know, it just it overwhelms you. And it especially overwhelms you to go back to what we first talked about uh, in terms of if we know just how deep we are in our sins then we see just how gracious God is and his loving kindness and his mercy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and Holy Communion is supposed to be one of those things that um, sacramentally renews that union. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of date night between, uh, between our, the bridegroom and the bride. <laughs> interesting way of putting it there i can't say i thought about that way before <laughs> well this has been great you know i think this is a good yeah. stopping point and uh once again so much for our short podcast but this is a joy so good to, to get to chat about this and when we pick up uh we're picking up on god and self uh within chapter four so looking forward to it uh, next time man. and we will we will see you all then god bless It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.